If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 24, 1 to 3. Again, that's Matthew 24, 1 to 3. Today marks our third week in Jesus' seminal lecture on the end times, a sermon known today as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Up to this point, uh, everything we've discussed has merely been an introduction to that lesson, and today is going to be no different. We've still got, uh, including this week, two weeks to go, one more week after this, before we'll start to really dig into the answer that Jesus gives here. Uh, With that in mind, I'd like to begin our message today by going back and reading the verses that introduced this sermon, which is Matthew 24, 1-3. Again, it's the Tuesday before Jesus' Passion. He has just publicly condemned Israel's religious leadership in the temple. No doubt those religious leaders are already beginning to plot their final act of treachery against Jesus. Jesus is storming out of the temple in a torrent of both anger and it would appear deep, deep despair when Matthew writes this. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Surely I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the close of the age? A couple of weeks ago I said that it's hard to fathom just how incredibly tone-deaf the disciples could be at times. You look throughout the Gospels and there's just example after example of the disciples clearly missing the point of what Jesus is trying to teach them. There's the instance where Peter corrects Jesus about his coming crucifixion and resurrection, or the moment shortly after that when Peter suggests that he and the disciples erect three tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then, of course, there are the multiple examples of the disciples fighting with one another for the title of greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So often they just don't seem capable of grasping the main points of Jesus' teaching. And this comment about the buildings in the temple complex is another perfect example. Jesus has just spent the past several days repeatedly declaring judgment on Jerusalem. And then as they leave the temple together, the disciples have the gall to comment on the beauty of the temple. Luke says they couldn't stop talking about how it was, quote, adorned with noble stones and offerings. Mark says that they remarked, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings... They're simply awestruck by the beauty and size of this absolutely magnificent temple complex. But clearly they don't get the point. This temple, is, it's coming down, and the devastation that's going to occur when it happens is going to be massive. It would appear that Jesus leaves the temple absolutely overwhelmed at the thought of the thousands upon thousands of Jews that would be killed in 40 years' time as a result of what's transpired here in the temple during this week. And here the disciples are acting like a bunch of slack-jawed tourists. It's really bizarre, the incongruence between Jesus and his disciples in this moment. Jesus, of course, very abruptly corrects their understanding in verse 2. And then it would appear it's nothing but silence the rest of the way up the Mount of Olives. It would seem that the disciples are trying to come to grips with the implications of what Jesus said after that. Four of them are able to grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying. They know he's talking about the end. And so Peter, Andrew, James, and John approach Jesus privately as he's overlooking the city. 
And they asked the question on everyone's mind. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Again, it's hard to fathom how the disciples could have had such a hard time grasping what would, be, what would seem to be such foundational components to Jesus' teaching. Of course, hard to fathom, but not impossible. And the reason is because we're in the same boat. We too struggle to grasp the meaning of much of what Jesus said so often. I think there's no better example of this than our current course of study, the doctrine of end times. This field of study, a field commonly referred to as eschatology, uh, it can be incredibly confounding. In fact, I've stated in recent weeks that I've even experienced a fair amount of angst leading up to the Olivet Discourse for precisely this reason. It can all just seem so incredibly complex and confusing to the average observer. It can feel like trying to put a puzzle together without a box. You think you have the pieces you need, and so you start to dutifully piece them together But it can be a slow and frustrating work, and one that can often leave you with more questions than answers the further you get into it. We look back on men like John the Baptist, and we're puzzled how someone like him, who who Jesus once said was the greatest of men born of women up to that point of history, how that man, empowered by the Holy Spirit from birth to proclaim the coming of Messiah, how he of all people could be confused about the timing of Jesus' kingdom. But he was. In Matthew 11, he sends messengers from jail asking Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, it doesn't appear that John is necessarily confused about who Jesus is. Jesus points out as much just a few verses later when he says that John was not a man to be compared with a reed shaken by the wind. He was a man of clear conviction and purpose. This much was clear from his present imprisonment, right? John was a man who stuck by his guns. So John was not the type to doubt what he saw or what it meant. He knew that Jesus was the promised son of David. He knew that he was the one who had baptized with the Holy Spirit. Still, it would seem that John was beginning to wonder whether or not there might be another figure yet to come in God's unfolding plan of redemption. Things are going slower than what he expected. And so he starts to wonder. He sends these messengers to Jesus and he says, I don't get it. I I thought you were the one who was going to kick everything off. So why aren't you? I mean, am I missing something? Is Is there still someone yet to come after you? Should we be waiting for that person? Of course, Jesus then proceeds to perform a demonstration for John's disciples that shows them, no, you're not looking for anyone else. I'm exactly who you thought I was, John. And he tells them to go and tell John what they saw. But the point is, John the Baptist struggled to understand the timing of Jesus' kingdom, right? This whole part of Jesus' ministry where he would suffer for our sins, John seemed to grasp at least part of this. After all, it was him who first told the disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet it would seem that he still had trouble reconciling this aspect of Jesus' ministry with the Old Testament passages that predicted a conquering and victorious Messiah. And so perplexed, he asked Jesus, could you explain this to me? Is there something that I'm missing? Are we waiting for someone else? Now we can see it all clearly standing at we are, where we are in history. On this side of the cross in the empty tomb, we understand why Jesus didn't immediately vanquish his foes. It's because he had to first die for our sin. We get this, right? But, but hindsight's 20-20, isn't it? 
I mean, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, and we really have to say that the only reason why we're not confused by Jesus' first advent is because we're standing on the other side of history. We get to interpret the Old Testament passages about a suffering Messiah after they've been fulfilled. If we were on the other side of the cross, no doubt we'd be just as confused as Jesus' disciples were about the predictions of His suffering and death. And I think it's wise to keep this in mind as we try to unpack the predictions concerning His second advent. Whatever conclusions we come to in this study, I think it's wise to do so with a measure of humility and of understanding towards those with whom we disagree. And I think this is most especially true for for our subject for today. Once again, if you recall, I said last week that I think it's helpful to approach eschatology kind of like a puzzle. Uh, In most puzzles, there are major landmarks with clearly defined shapes that are easier to work with. And then there are the pieces that are much more indistinct and much more difficult to work with. Uh, Usually the best way to put a puzzle together is by starting with your edge pieces first, which frame the puzzle, and then you work your way in, narrowing down the pieces you have to work with as you go by starting with those more clearly defined landmarks, getting them set before finally moving on to work with the harder pieces. That's the approach we're taking. And before we really get into the answers that Jesus lays out in the Olivet Discourse, we have that, that, which have primarily to do with chronology, I want to start first by describing what the major landmarks are that we have to work with. And then we can get down to the details. Uh, unfortunately, there doesn't appear to be a box for us to work with to guide us with each piece of the puzzle Uh, as we go to put it together. I'm going to try to describe for you what I think the puzzle looks like once it's all put together over the next several weeks. But before we get there, I want to first describe what's in the puzzle, just so you're clear about what we're working with first. I think this is going to go a long way in helping us see how these seemingly disparate concepts that we're going to come across finally lock together. Last week, I started by briefly describing the, f- the three most foundational components in eschatology, which are the millennium, the eternal state, and the day of the Lord. You can think of these three points kind of like tent poles to a person's vision of the future. Everything else hangs off of these three ideas. They give form to everything else that we're going to talk about. If you put them close together, you have a small tent. If you spread them out, you have a large tent. If you arrange them in a line, you'll end up with a rectangular tent. If you put them in a circle, you'll have a triangular tent, that sort of thing. Point is, they alter your interpretation of the other events that surround them. The eternal state, of course, refers to what takes place at the very end of time, after Jesus returns and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. The millennium refers to a time preceding the eternal state, when Jesus enjoys some type of global dominion over the earth. We get that term from Revelation 20, which states that before the end comes, Jesus will reign on the earth with his saints for a thousand years. A thousand years is a millennium, hence the term millennium. Finally, the day of the Lord refers to a period of great judgment, which will precede the end of all things. We know from 2 Peter 3 that it at least precedes the eternal state, Whether or not that day of judgment extends across the millennium, though, really depends on what your take on the millennium is. And that's going to form the basis of our discussion today, the nature of the millennial kingdom. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of disagreement about the nature of the millennium over the years. 
Just as there was initially confusion about how the Messiah could be at once both a suffering servant and a victorious king, so also the church today wrestles to put together passages that seem to present different versions of the kingdom of heaven. With the result that there are several different opinions about what the kingdom is going to be like. If you remember, like I said last week, regarding the major landmarks of eschatology, that while there may be general agreement about the major landmarks in the puzzle, there can still be some disagreement regarding the interpretation of those landmarks. In other words, while every side can agree, for instance, that there might be a four-legged animal in the puzzle, there may still be some disagreement about what the four-legged animal is. Some will say it's a horse, some will say it's a cow, others will say the pieces form a dog. Well, that's kind of like what we have with the millennium. Everyone agrees that the millennium is there in the Scripture. There's just disagreement about what it is and what it's going to look like. Jesus doesn't seem to answer that for us in the Olivet Discourse, at least not directly. It's more something that he assumes going into the message. And so before we begin our exposition of the discourse in earnest, I think we must get this issue settled and clarified. Uh, As I hope to show you today, your position on the millennium will affect the way you interpret Jesus' account of the chronology of the end. And so once again, seeing as how our understanding of the discourse will be directly affected by this issue, and seeing as how Jesus doesn't really address it directly in the discourse, I think we've got to get this idea settled in advance. uh, We're going to come at this with a a presupposition that I think is going to... uh, confuse us if we don't clarify it. And so we're going to clarify our presupposition as we go. With that in mind, let me just say up front, while I think that there is one right position on the millennium, uh, that's not to say that the other positions are entirely without merit. I've said before, I don't like going to go burning straw men. Uh, So in preparation for today, I've try to do what I can to keep an open mind and see this concept from the other side. I've read men who disagree with me and consider their arguments. I have to tell you, some of them I've really found pretty good. They're really quite good. However, in the end, I still disagree. This doesn't mean that I can't respect them as serious students of the Bible, but I think they're wrong. I don't think they're in sin uh, or anything like that. We just disagree, and I can see why. This stuff isn't easy. So as we approach this discussion, I'd encourage you, Take a position on this, on this issue, please. Be decisive. As we've said before, God means for you to apply this material to your life, so you need to make your best effort at understanding this issue. Just do so with humility. Remember that you're, that you're not flawless, that it may be you who's wrong in the end, and use that realization to extend a measure of grace uh, to those with whom you disagree. Well, enough introduction. Let's go ahead and get on with it. What is the nature of the millennium? What does it look like? And how does it affect our understanding of eschatology? Well, there are three major positions, all of which disagree about the timing of Jesus' return, more or less, one way or another. The first major position is premillennialism. Premillennialism. The term premillennialism tells you most of what you need to know about what it teaches. Uh, You have the prefix pre, which is attached to the term millennial, which is a reference to the millennial kingdom. Premillennialism believes that Jesus will return before the establishment of a thousand-year kingdom here on earth. It's that last part, by the way, 
that is critical to an understanding not just of premillennialism, but of all the major positions that we're going to talk about. A major part of what distinguishes these positions from one another is whether or not they believe the millennial reign of Jesus occurs here on earth. In other words, does the kingdom have a physical presence here on earth? Premillennialism says yes. In particular, it teaches that before the eternal state arrives, Jesus will reign over a restored national Israel for the span of a thousand years. And typically it takes, the span, it takes that span of time to be literal. The kingdom will last literally for a thousand years before the end comes. Also critical to this position is the belief that the day of the Lord, in a sense, spans across those thousand years and, uh, before the end comes. This is not to say that the entire thousand years is filled with wrath and judgment. Rather, it sees the millennial kingdom as a kind of parentheses in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins with the Great Tribulation, which we'll begin to discuss next week. The Great Tribulation culminates in the return of Christ, who then establishes His thousand-year kingdom. And then at the end, it concludes with the destruction of the present heavens and earth and the creation of a new heavens and earth. So it kind of sees this entire period, beginning with the Tribulation, going through the millennium, going up to the end where the new heavens and the earth are created, this entire period as the predicted day of the Lord, even though there's a period of peace in between. And this would go along with the idea that we discussed last week, which understands the day of the Lord to be more of a concept than it is an event. Uh, You have day of the Lord judgment scattered throughout history. Some have already occurred in the Old Testament. There There were more to come, obviously, thousands of years later. And after the millennium begins, there will be yet more to come. And the reason is because the day of the Lord, according to, is, is not just an event. Uh, it's an idea. It refers to the time of God's vindication, the time of His wrath, the time of reckoning. And this can occur in several different ways in several different periods throughout history. So that's the basic idea behind premillennialism. Uh, it would find support in passages like Revelation 20, 1-6, which says this. Probably go ahead and turn there, Revelation 20, 1-6. Actually, we'll read through verse 15, Revelation 21 to 15. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be uh, priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Of course, this is not the only passage that the premillennials would use to support their position. Unfortunately, we just don't have time to look at every passage that they would go to for support, but that's one of the foundation, foundational ones. It speaks of a future thousand-year reign of Christ preceding the destruction of the heavens and the earth. It speaks of a resurrection occurring before this thousand-year kingdom. And so assuming that this is speaking of a bodily resurrection, it is assumed that this is a physical reign on the present heavens and earth. One of the distinctives of premillennialism is that it interprets Old Testament predictions about the future literally. That's actually where it gets much of this idea that there must be a physical reign of Christ on the earth. The reason is because God promised to give Israel global dominion. It's assumed that national ethnic Israel must one day experience global dominion. That's something they had never experienced. And so it says that this must be fulfilled. This is a hallmark of premillennial thought. It sees the fulfillment of that promise here in the millennium. This is actually the point that distinguishes premillennialism from the other two positions, this literal hermeneutic as regards to prophecy. The other two positions adopt what's called a more allegorical approach. So this is a major part of what we have to consider when evaluating each position. What is the appropriate way to read Old Testament prophecy? The second major position is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. Again, just from the name, you can tell much of what this position teaches. It is post-millennial. The prefix post means after, so it believes that Jesus will return after the millennium. Uh, It, too, would look at passages like Revelation 20 and say that there is an actual millennial reign on the earth that precedes the eternal state, so it shares this much in common with premillennialism. It argues for an earthly kingdom preceding the eternal state. However, it would say that Jesus' reign over this kingdom is, in a sense, spiritual in nature. The kingdom occurs here on earth, but Jesus isn't here for it. He only enters the picture at the end. The reason for this distinction from premillennialism has to do with the understanding of the day of the Lord. Uh, just like our next millennial position on the agenda, post-millennialists believe that the day of the Lord is a singular event. Uh, premillennialists, for instance, would look at Revelation 20 and say that there are multiple bodily resurrections. There's a resurrection of believers unto life at the beginning of the millennium. Then there's a resurrection of unbelievers unto judgment and death at the end of the millennium. This is based off of verses 4 to 6 of Revelation 20, which says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge 
to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So that's one resurrection, right? At the beginning of the thousand years. And then premillennialists say there's another at the end, according to Revelation 20, 11 to 13, which says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. That resurrection occurs when the earth and sky flee away. So obviously we're talking about the eternal state at this point. The first resurrection unto life occurred at the beginning of the millennial reign. So hence, two resurrections. At least. And I can explain the at least at another time. point is, premillennialists say the scriptures teach multiple resurrections broken up by a thousand year parenthesis in the middle. Not so, says the post-millennialist. They would look at passages like John 5, 25-29, and they would say that there is one bodily resurrection. In John 5, 25-29, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is a son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Uh, The key word in this passage is the word hour. In other words, this passage doesn't seem to treat the resurrection of believers and unbelievers as two separate events, but as one which occurs at roughly the same time. When is that time? According to the post-millennialist, it's at the return of Jesus. Right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, uh, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Uh, Clearly, this passage, as well as others, indicate that believers will be raised at the return of Christ. Jesus only comes back once, says the post-millennialist, at the end. And so they reason this must occur at the end. It must occur at the same time that Jesus resurrects and judges unbelievers. Since unbelievers are judged immediately before the eternal state, that must be when Jesus returns as well. And the dead in Christ are raised right before the eternal state. But what about the resurrection of believers before the millennium? In Revelation 20, right? That's a question we have to ask. Well, both post-millennialists and amillennialists, which is our next millennial position, they would say that this is a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily one. We are spiritually raised to life, they say, when we believe in Christ. We are positionally and later actually seated with Christ in heaven. And then we experience a bodily resurrection at the end when all the dead are raised together. So again, the major takeaway here is that post-millennialism sees the day of the Lord as a strictly post-millennial event, along with the return of Christ. 
Post-millennialism then teaches that in the meantime, Christianity is going to gradually expand its influence across the earth until finally it achieves a position of world domination. That's the earthly kingdom described in Revelation 20. It's a period of time, perhaps a literal thousand years, perhaps not, but a period of time during which the world is almost entirely Christianized. There are two different ways of understanding this millennium. Some say that this millennium began at Jesus' resurrection and will culminate with the global dominion that invites Jesus' return. Others say it will begin once global dominion has been established and Christ will come after that has occurred for a millennium. Again, whether that's a thousand years or not. Once again, post-millennialists would take their argument from several different passages, but the strongest passage would appear to be the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. If you remember, Jesus described the kingdom alternately as a mustard seed and then later as leaven in that passage, apparently pointing to this gradually increasing growth of the kingdom. The parable of the weeds as well, which speaks of the weeds growing alongside the tares until the time of harvest. This would be a passage that they say points to a kingdom that gradually grows up until the final day of the Lord. So that's post-millennialism. The third major millennial position is amillennialism. Ah, millennialism. Now, unlike the first two, this name can be a bit of a misnomer. The, the ah prefix usually designates negation. It means something like not or without. Someone who is amoral lacks any concern for morality. The atheist, of course, the atheist, is a person who denies the existence of God. They are a non-theist. Uh, this would seem to indicate that the amillennialist denies the existence of a millennial kingdom. And that would be absolutely ridiculous, right, given Revelation 20. Clearly, there's some type of millennial kingdom described. And the amillennialists would acknowledge this. They would just say that it's a heavenly kingdom rather than an earthly one. So go back to what I said earlier about one of the defining characteristics of each millennial position. I said it's, it's whether or not there is a physical manifestation of the kingdom on earth, whether there is an actual global dominion on the earth in some form. Amillennialism says no at least not until the heavens and earth are renewed in the eternal state. That's kind of where the awe in awe millennialism comes from. There's no actual reign of Jesus on the earth before His return. There's no physical presence of the kingdom per se over the whole earth. What awe millennialism says instead is that Jesus' millennial reign is strictly a, a heavenly one, a spiritual one. It's a figurative kingdom. Jesus reigns over His church, which He's doing right now. And that's the millennium of Revelation 20. So, it, it differs from both pre- and post-millennialism on this point, because they both believe that Jesus will experience some form of real, actual, global dominion on this earth before He returns, whether that's mediated through His church or through Israel. Uh, the amillennialist does not see it that way. The way amillennialism gets there is in much the same way that post-millennialism does. The amillennialist would essentially agree with the post-millennialist and their opinion of the day of the Lord. And they would go to more or less the same passages to argue that there is one resurrection that precedes the eternal state, and it coincides with the physical return of Christ. They would likewise argue that the first resurrection in Revelation 20 is a spiritual one. However, they would agree with premillennialists in its most basic critique of postmillennialism, which is chiefly that nowhere does the Scripture seem to indicate that the world is going to improve before the return of Christ. 
they would go to passages like Matthew 7, 13 to 14, which indicates that narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Or passages like Matthew 10, 24 to 25, which says that the disciples are not greater than the master, and if the master of the house was called Beelzebul, how much more will the world malign those of his household? And they see in those passages a prediction of relentless suffering before the return of the Messiah. And this is to say nothing of the Great Tribulation. Uh, Post-millennialists have a hard time with passages like the Olivet Discourse because as we will see, Jesus predicts a time of global turmoil and intense persecution before the end of time. Not a time of peace. That's entirely inconsistent with the concept of post-millennialism. In fact, for this reason, many post-millennialists will adopt a position known as preterism. Or if not full-blown preterism, at least partial preterism, in order to, to... to accommodate their position. Preterism is the belief that the events of the Olivet Discourse, the Great Tribulation, were fulfilled at the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD. We'll see, that's a hard position to justify historically. Very little of what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse can find any kind of historical correspondence to the events of 70 AD. Both amillennialists and premillennialists will reject postmillennialism for this reason. Amillennialists will then take it a step further and argue that neither post nor premillennialism can be true because in the words of one amillennialist, our Lord knows only two ages, the present age and the age to come. So then, how do amillennialists deal with passages that speak of global dominion? Of passages that speak of Israel re-entering and possessing the land of Canaan, many of which we looked at last week. How do they deal with those passages? Well, they'll do it in two ways. First, they'll allegorize the prophecies. Uh, they point to various instances in the New Testament when apostolic writers point at various Old Testament images as a type, and then they expand this on the rest of prophecy. The argument is that all the Old Testament is but a type pointing to Jesus. And they would support this idea with passages like Hebrews 8, 1-7, Hebrews 10, 1-4, which speak of the Mosaic system being a type and a shadow of greater heavenly realities. They would point also to Hebrews 11, 8-16, which speaks of Abraham looking not merely for an earthly inheritance when he left Ur of the Chaldeans, but a heavenly one. Galatians 4, and the allegorical comparison between Sarah and Hagar as representative of Mount Zion and Mount Sinai is another favorite passage as well. And then from these passages, they argue that this is the hermeneutic of the New Testament authors. The idea is that Old Testament Jews were unable to understand the higher spiritual realities that God had in store for us before the advent of Christ. And so in order to accommodate these early believers in their understanding, he condescended to their point of view by speaking to them in symbols and types of things that they could understand. To quote one amillennial author, it is a necessary feature of effective communication, which we have all experienced and understand, that when we wish to describe to a friend something that he or she has not yet experienced, we do so by appeals to what our friend has already experienced. In order to communicate to God's people still living under the Old Covenant, the prophets, by the Spirit's inspiration, spoke of the, the, of the blessings God would pour out under the New Covenant in terms of typological images so familiar to the Old Covenant saints. 
In other words, the idea is that the Old Testament is almost a kind of parable. It's a story that embeds doctrinal truth in symbolic characters and events. Now, in this case, they're real people and they're real events, but they're still symbols nonetheless. And so, say all millennialists, when the Old Testament makes predictions about Israel, it speaks not of the ethnic national entity called Israel, nor does it refer to Abraham's physical descendants, the Jews. Instead, it's a reference to the true Israel, which is the church. When passages speak about of predictions concerning Mount Zion, they speak not of the actual city of Jerusalem, but of heaven. References to a temple are references to the Messiah, who is the ultimate temple of God. Promises concerning the land of Canaan speak of the new heavens and earth. And predictions of a future Davidic kingdom are fulfilled in Christ's reign over His church. Passages like Isaiah 2, which speak of the nations streaming up to Zion to worship the King of Israel, these are fulfilled in the church age as Gentiles come to faith in Israel's Messiah. This is one way that amillennialists deal with passages that seem not to have a proper historical fulfillment. They'll allegorize prophecies and say they are fulfilled presently in the church. And by the way, it's not just amillennialists that will do this. Postmillennialists do the same thing. They agree with the amillennial hermeneutic, even if they don't agree with the particular interpretation of Revelation 20. And what I mean is that while postmillennialists believe in an earthly millennial reign, an amillennialist, a heavenly one, they are both agreed that the millennial, the millennium has little to nothing to do with the restoration of a national Israel. Even in post-millennialism, the earthly kingdom is one that is shared by all the nations. National Israel does not enjoy the role of primacy that seems to be described in so many passages in Scripture. The way the post-millennialists explain this difference is in the same way the amillennialists would, by saying that the church is Israel. The church, therefore, fulfills this promise of Israel's global dominion over the earth. So that's one way amillennialists deal with this. And then second, amillennialists will also push other types of prophecies that have not been fulfilled into the far future, all the way into the eternal state. Uh, quoting the same amillennial author I quoted just a moment ago, he says, amillennialism is often charged with ignoring the fact that there are prophecies regarding the restoration and renewal of the earth that are yet to be fulfilled. But amillennialism does not ignore such prophecies. It simply recognizes that they are to be understood in terms of a new heaven and a new earth. They picture that which will indeed be earthly, but eternal, not merely for a thousand years. The scope of Christ's redemptive accomplishment will be truly cosmic, and it will be as uh, complete and as perfect for humankind's environment as it will be for human beings themselves. So fulfillment of prophecy in the eternal state, that's the second method amillennialism uses to deal with the unfulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And once again, the result of these methods is the belief that there is no earthly millennium. That the millennial reign of Revelation 20 is taking place now because it's not speaking of an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual one. This is the third and final major position on the millennium, uh, millennialism. Now, which of these positions you adopt will have a significant impact on the way you read Jesus' all of the discourse. And particularly, it's going to have an impact in the following two related ways. First, these positions raise the question of who the Great, tri- uh, great Tribulation is about primarily, and why does it occur? 
Much of the Olivet Discourse has to do with the Great Tribulation. The question is, who endures this tribulation and why? Jeremiah 30, verse 7, refers to this as the time of, as a time of distress for Jacob, or as the King James translate it, translates it, the time of Jacob's trouble. What's that a reference to? Both the amillennialist and the postmillennialist would say it's a reference to the church. Keep in mind, neither envisions much of a future for national Israel. The church is Israel. True, some millennialists and postmillennialists will argue for a future conversion of Israel. In fact, such a revival would be intrinsic, actually, to the postmillennialist emerging global kingdom. However, it's not because Israel is in any way special. It's because all the nations of the earth will turn to Yahweh in that day. Likewise, the amillennialists will acknowledge that there may be a future conversion of Israel according to passages like Romans 11. But such a conversion would only manage to bring Jews into the true Israel, which is the church. And so if we want to know who the tribulation is, in a sense, for, the answer, according to these positions, is the church. The question I have is why? And it's at this point that I think both sides have trouble coming up with a sufficient answer. No doubt you could say the church serves as a witness perhaps during this time, but this still doesn't say why the scripture seems to indicate that the day of the Lord is meant in part to correct Israel. Is the tribulation then indicative of a time of intense rebellion in the church? Is God disciplining a regenerate people through severe trials? It just doesn't seem to add up. The premillennialist, on the other hand, will say that the tribulation is primarily for Israel. And it's for the reasons I just described not a few weeks ago when we looked at the end of Matthew 23. Jesus closes out his condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees by declaring, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your houses left you desolate? For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The idea there is that the judgment that begins in 70 AD and then culminates with the great tribulation is meant to evoke this response from Israel, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's to bring repentance. The people will not see Jesus again until they say this. They have to be brought to repentance. And the tribulation will be God's means of achieving that. The severe apostasy of God's chosen nation provokes the tribulation. He brings it about for their chastisement and ultimately their restoration. The tribulation, therefore, according to the premillennialist, is primarily for Israel. Meaning that when we read the Olivet Discourse, when we look at passages about the tribulation in Revelation, we have to read them in this light. That's the purpose for the tribulation. The second question raised by these millennial positions is, is this. When will the rapture occur? We haven't talked much about the rapture at this point. We'll get into it more next week. Quite simply, uh, the rapture is an event wherein both the dead in Christ are raised and both the dead uh, and, and uh, living believers uh, rather are immediately translated to meet Christ in the air in their resurrection bodies. Again, I'll talk about this a a bit more next week, but if you're totally unaware of this concept, that's what I mean when I use the word rapture. Premillennialism's view of the day of the Lord leaves room for a pre-tribulational rapture. 
Now, I should probably clarify, premillennialists are not inherently pre-tribulational. By this, I mean not every premillennialist will say that the rapture will occur before the tribulation events described in the Olivet Discourse. There are a variety of mid-tribulational views out there, and they're entirely consistent with premillennialism, but on the whole, premillennialism tends to go pre-tribulation. And there are two reasons for this. First, premillennialism says that according to Revelation 20, there are at least two resurrections, one before the millennium and one after. And then second, because the purpose of the tribulation is first to discipline Israel, and then second, to inflict wrath on the unbelieving world. And so it makes sense, therefore, for God to remove the church before these events unfold. The church doesn't really fit into those plans. Now, the argument is not as simple as that. Premillennialists would point to several passages that argue for a pre-tribulational rapture, but the point is there's most definitely room for that concept in their system. This is not the case for either post- or amillennialists. First off, remember that many post-millennialists will adopt a preterist model of the tribulation in order to accommodate their understanding that the world will increasingly improve up until the end. But for those who do still maintain that there is a tribulation yet to come, as well as for amillennialists, the rapture is most definitely post-tribulational. Meaning, the church will endure the full brunt of the fury of the tribulation when it comes. The reason for this is because they say there is only one resurrection. And that occurs at the very end, immediately before the eternal state. Remember, both say that the first resurrection of Revelation 20 is a spiritual one. It speaks of regeneration. This is how they both explain their various takes on the kingdom now concept. And so because there's only one resurrection at the end, then everyone who is on the earth when the tribulation begins will remain on the earth until its conclusion, including Christians. No doubt these two questions combined... Who is the Great Tribulation about? And when will the rapture occur? Those are going to have a significant impact on how we understand Jesus' teaching on the, in the Olivet Discourse. So which position is right? I believe each position has merit. I mean, they really almost have to have some merit, right? For so many wise and intelligent men and women to disagree. And they do. Each position has merit in its own right. However, I believe the position that best accounts for all the biblical evidence is premillennialism. And let me briefly explain why. And by brief, I do mean brief. I want to give you five reasons why I'm a premillennialist. And for time's sake, this obviously means I can't but say a few sentences for each reason. And I'll just leave it up to you to ask me whatever questions you still have about what I'm saying here during our evening discussion tonight at 6 o'clock. Just as a heads up, these reasons are not comprehensive, uh, nor am I going to delve much into an in-depth exegesis of all the relevant passages for obvious reasons. There's, so there's more to say here than what I'm saying. Uh, the purpose for today is just to introduce the topic. And so even in my reasons, I'm only going to hit this at a superficial level. The first reason why I'm a premillennialist is this. The premillennialist hermeneutic makes the most sense. The premillennialist hermeneutic makes the most sense. Hermeneutic, of course, refers to a method of interpretation. I think the premillennialist model of interpretation makes the most sense. Where you fall in the spectrum of millennial positions really hinges on this point. Your method of hermeneutics will determine which millennial position you hold. If you adopt a grammatical, historical method of interpretation, meaning, by that, meaning, if you say that the meaning of the text is what the original author meant to communicate to his original audience, 
as they would have understood it, if you adopt that method of interpretation, then you will inevitably end up premillennial. It's the logical conclusion of that hermeneutic. And even amillennialists will agree with this, by the way. As one amillennialist observes, quote, a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies gives us just a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. Both post- and amillennialists lean heavily on the use of allegory in their interpretation of Old Testament prophecies, and they'll point to the New Testament use of Old Testament passages to substantiate their position. I think there are other ways of dealing with those passages than implying that the New Testament authors were changing the original meaning of the Old Testament text as the original audience would have understood it. And, And that's key in all of this. Did the original audience understand the meaning of the Old Testament prophecies in the way that post- and amillennialists describe? I think the answer is clearly no. And they'll agree with that. They even charge premillennialists with adopting a Jewish method of interpretation rather than what they say is an apostolic one. So my question is, if the point of types and symbols is to make hard-to-explain concepts easier to grasp, Did God then fail in his purpose? It would seem so, because by the time we get to the disciples, it's clear they didn't understand the millennium in the way that the post and amillennialists describe. And Jesus never seems to correct them, by the way. For example, in Acts 1, 6-8, the disciples ask the resurrected Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's obvious they're still looking for a physical kingdom, an actual restoration of national ethnic Israel. But Jesus doesn't say, what are you talking about? Israel's not going to be restored. Can't you see this is the kingdom? No, he says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The implication is that they weren't wrong in what they were expecting. It just wasn't for them to know when it would happen. I think this is compelling. The disciples expected a restoration of Israel, and Jesus never corrected them. I think that points to an endorsement of a grammatical historical approach to Old Testament prophecy. Let's move now to our next point, number two. Second reason why I'm a premillennialist. There are Old Testament prophecies that seem to imply that sin is in the world even after the regeneration. And this lends itself most easily to a premillennial position. For example, Zechariah 14, 16-19. It describes a post-Armageddon world like this. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the Feast of Booths. This is the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So the nations have been conquered at the return of Christ. We see that in verses 3 to 4 of Zechariah 14. But there are some people who still won't worship Him. Whole nations even. And they're punished for it. I don't think that explains the current state of affairs. 
And it certainly can't describe the eternal state. It would make sense, though, in an earthly millennial kingdom. And there are a couple of other passages like this, but that's my third reason. Related to this reason is number four, or reasons number three and number four. Number three, premillennialism best accounts for many unfulfilled passages of Scripture. Premillennialism best accounts for many unfulfilled passages of Scripture. Last week we read from Ezekiel 37 how in the days of Messiah, Israel and Judah would be united into one kingdom. Under the amillennial method of allegorical interpretation, the church is Israel. So who's Judah and who's Israel in that passage? Like would it represent a divided Christendom? It's pure speculation, isn't it? And and this is part of the whole problem with the allegorical model. It's so incredibly unclear. You can make these unfulfilled passages mean practically anything you want, which kind of defeats the purpose of communication. Reason number four. Number four. Premillennialism best accounts for the binding of Satan in Revelation 20. Premillennialism best accounts for the binding of Satan in Revelation 20. I think this is a huge flaw in post and millennial models. They require, they require, both of them, that Satan is presently bound, which is most obviously not the case, unless you adopt the post-millennial model that says the kingdom hasn't yet come, but it will, and then there will be a thousand years. That would be the one exception. But, but both awe and post-millennial models, on the whole, don't account for this binding of Satan. Now, they'll point out that Satan is only... Uh, bound in the way described here in Revelation 20. And they'll, they'll point to the fact that he's no longer free to deceive the nations. That's the way it's described in Revelation 20. And they'll say that in the Old Testament, Israel was a unique object of God's revelation, and that what Revelation 20 is saying is that the floodgates are going to be open during the millennium for the nations to believe. The issue is that, uh, the issue that I would have with this idea, though, is that Paul indicates that Satan does still have this ability to deceive. When he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Further, John flatly declares in 1 John 5, 18-20, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we who are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The idea in both passages is that repentance uh, is by the grace of God, and apart from this grace, believers are still, or unbelievers rather, are still presently bound by Satan. So premillennialism best accounts for Satan's present activity in the world. And then finally, number five, premillennialism best accounts for the doctrine of imminence. Premillennialism best accounts for the doctrine of imminence. What I mean by this is that in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to explain that His return can happen at any time. And that when it happens, it will happen unexpectedly and without any forewarning. That's harder to fit into a system that says the rapture can only occur at the end of a thousand-year kingdom here on earth or at the end of a seven-year period of tribulation. The possibility 
of a pre- or mid-tribulational rapture, though, is able to account for this expectation of an imminent return found really throughout the New Testament as well as uh, for the seven-year period of tribulation. And as I explained, those are positions that are unique to premillennialism. So those are the basic reasons that explain why I'm a premillennialist. And, and this is not to say that premillennialism is not without its weaknesses. I just happen to think those weaknesses are easier to account for than the weaknesses of post and millennialism. And again, this doesn't mean that I don't respect those who hold a different view. I understand why they get there. Again, I just happen to think they're wrong. So, this is the perspective I'm going to take moving forward. It's going to be that of pre-millennialism. And we'll continue next week by taking a quick overview of the events associated with the tribulation for our final week of introduction. We're going to take it from this pre-millennial perspective. And then it's finally on to the Olivet Discourse after that. In the meantime, I invite you to come back for our discussion tonight at 6 where you can ask me uh, any unanswered questions you may have that are still out there uh, from today's topic. Uh, Until then... Uh, Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Let's pray.